the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, January 15th already. Eight minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering Today's program. Today we'll talk with Beth and David Borum. They are co-authors of When Faith Becomes Sight opening your eyes to God's presence all around you. Uh, Both Beth and David are the co-founders and directors of the Fall Creek Abbey. It's an urban retreat center in Indianapolis where they lead the School of Spiritual Direction. They offer individual and group uh, direction. Uh, David is co-founder of Direction for Life work, through which he is a career counselor. Beth is the co-author of Awaken Your Senses and the author of several books, including Starting Something New. They'll both join us later in uh, this hour. So hope you can stay with us. Well, they're telling us that Portland has one last gasp chance to see some snow showers this week, although that is by no means certain. Friday morning shows a possible passing snow shower. Note passing this week's final chance to see a snow dusting before weekend temperatures and snow levels rise. There's no guarantee of snow showers in Portland on Friday morning. What's more certain is that temperatures will be around freezing, so snow or no snow, black ice will likely be a concern for the morning commute. It's no slam dunk, even at that uh, point, that we get these uh, snow showers. These are uh, There are other pieces of weather data that say that we just uh, simply... Uh, may have a dry day t- tomorrow morning um, with black ice concerns early on. I know that's been a concern for Mission Connection for the last uh, several days, praying that the weather would cooperate and people would not have to make a decision uh, as to whether or not it was safe to make it to Rolling Hills Community Church. But it looks like things are going to be just fine. By the way, temperatures will rise up to 40 during the day Friday and rain is in the forecast for Friday and Saturday. The cold air begins to move out on Saturday and snow levels could even creep back up above government camp. So if you were concerned about that, you needn't be. At least that's what they're saying at this moment. Taking a look at some of the headlines, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on Wednesday signed the formal articles of impeachment brought last month against President Trump and House Democrats carried the articles in a dramatic procession across the U.S. Capitol to the Senate, setting the stage for an historic trial where Trump's presidency will be at stake. Pelosi drew criticism for handing out commemorative pins with her name on them after signing a resolution to transmit the articles of impeachment against the president. She, um, needled the president at the news conference announcing her impeachment manager saying he's been impeached forever. They can never erase that because the outcome in the Senate is all but certain. To critics, the tone of the event seemed celebratory as far a far cry from December when Pelosi and other Democrats wore black and insisted on the House floor. It was a solemn day before the Democrat-controlled body voted to impeach the president. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said the Senate will meet with the House managers at noon on Thursday, which they did, to officially receive the articles of impeachment. Wednesday's mostly party-line House vote to deliver the charges was 228 to 
193, reflecting the deeply divided nation at the start of this uh, presidential election year. The Senate um, will transform itself into an impeachment court on Thursday. The Constitution calls on Chief Justice John Roberts to preside at the trial, administering the oath to senators who will serve as jurors and swear to deliver impartial justice. Opening arguments are to begin next Tuesday after the Martin Luther uh, King Jr. holiday. The president's team expects acquittal in the Republican majority Senate. The Senate trial is not expected to last more than two to six weeks, according to senior administration officials unauthorized to discuss the matter and granted anonymity. In other news, Rudy Giuliani, Lev Parnas, the indicted associate of President Trump's personal lawyer, Giuliani, on Wednesday night undercut House Democrats' explosive new suggestion that the Trump team had former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, uh, Marie Yovanovitch, under surveillance, saying in a televised interview that text messages that seemingly suggested Yovanovitch was being secretly monitored were in reality just the ramblings of a drunk. Speaking on MSNBC's The Rachel Maddow Show, Parnas uh, repeatedly said prominent Trump donor Robert Hyde uh, wasn't being serious when he claimed to know Yovanovitch's whereabouts in Kiev. Mere hours after President Trump signed phase one of the U.S.-China trade agreement, Vice President Mike Pence hailed the agreement uh, as a prime example of Trump fighting for free and fair and reciprocal trade. In an exclusive interview with Lou Dobbs, Vice President Pence promised more detail, more deal, uh, deals rather are ahead before the end of this week. We'll see the United States Senate approve the largest trade deal in American history, which they have now done. The vice president was referring to the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement or USMCA, the replacement for NAFTA, which he assured Dobbs will be headed to the president's desk for signing. The Senate has uh, taken the president's impeachment uh, over after the House has handed it off, and it's now in their hand. Nearly all of Pelosi's impeachment managers supported impeachment before whistleblower complaint was filed. So fair and impartial has not really been an issue um, of presence during this whole um, series of events. Federal watchdog has found the Office of Management and Budget violated the law by withholding the Ukraine aid, conveniently timed for the beginning of the Senate impeachment trial today. By the way, that aid has um, uh, since been passed along to Ukraine. The president signed phase one deal to um, uh, end the trade war, at least portions of it, with China. And a judge has blocked the Trump order that lets states cite uh, and cities rather reject refugees. You called me a liar, a quote from Elizabeth Warren speaking to Bernie Sanders post-Iowa debate. There was a live mic. The last decade was the warmest on record, according to NASA and NOAA. California teachers could be required to teach about climate change, according to CBS 13. And Northam uh, declares a state of of emergency, the capital uh, weapons ban against the gun rights rally, according to the Associated uh, Press. Credible threats or constitutional in run? That is the open question. And all senior Russian officials resigned as Vladimir Putin announced uh, reforms that would weaken his successor according to National Review. On this day in history, 1920, prohibition begins in the United States as the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution takes effect one year to the day after its ratification. It would later be repealed by the 21st Amendment. 27 B.C., oh yes, you heard me right, 27 B.C., Caesar Augustus is declared the first emperor of the Roman Empire by the Senate. 1547, Ivan IV, 
of Russia, better known as Ivan the Terrible, is crowned czar. And in 1865, Union Major General William T. Sherman decrees that 400,000 acres of land in the South would be divided into 40-acre lots and given to former slaves. The order, later revoked by President Andrew Johnson, is believed to have inspired the expression, 40 acres and a mule. 91, the White House announces the start of Operation Desert Storm to drive Iraqi forces out of Iraq. Allied forces would prevail on the 28th of that same month. And in 92, officials of the government in El Salvador and rebel leaders sign a pact in Mexico City, ending 12 years of civil war that left at least 75,000 dead. And finally, 2007, Senator Barack Obama launches his presidential campaign. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Beth and David Borum. They are co-authors of When Faith Becomes Sight, Opening Your Eyes to God's Presence All Around You. Again, they'll join us later this hour. Well, constitutional law professor Jonathan Turley laid out a sweeping indictment of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, arguing that her impeachment strategy backfired and gave Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell the upper hand. Well, the delay now seems largely driven by a desire to preserve the image of Pelosi as a master strategist, despite the blunder in the first order, Turley wrote in a column titled Pelosi's Blunder, How the House Destroyed Its Own Case for Impeachment. Well, his comments came as the speaker uh, prepared to transmit articles of impeachment to the Senate roughly a month after the House approved them. She initially withheld them in an apparent attempt to draw concessions from McConnell. On Wednesday, she announced the seven lawmakers who will serve as impeachment managers to prosecute the case against the president at his Senate trial. There was no reason why Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell would make concessions to get an impeachment that he loathed, Turley wrote. He similarly suggested that Pelosi pushed impeachment out of vanity and would pay a high price for doing so. I'm not sure what that price might be, but he went on to say, The fact is that Pelosi played into the hands of McConnell by first rushing this impeachment forward with an incomplete record and now giving him the excuse to similarly, uh, rather to summarily change the rules or even to dismiss the articles altogether. Waiting for the House to submit a list of managers was always a courtesy extended by Senate rules and not a requirement of the Constitution. By inappropriately withholding the articles of impeachment and breaking with tradition, Pelosi simply gave McConnell ample reason to exercise the nuclear option and change the rules on both majority voting as well as the rule for the start of trials. That is a very high price to pay for vanity, he went on to say. On Twitter, he also derided a presser in which Pelosi announced her list of impeachment managers for the Senate trial. Speaker Pelosi's statement that time has been our friend is bizarre, Turley tweeted. The new evidence and witnesses could have been part of the record with actual testimony and discovery by the House. Instead, she did nothing for four weeks and hoped for the uh, a tide to bring flotsam wreckage. Turley previously testified before the House Judiciary Committee as part of the Democrats' impeachment inquiry. During that testimony, he cautioned House members against hastily pursuing the impeachment. One can oppose President Trump's policies or actions, but still conclude that the current uh, legal case for impeachment is not just woefully inadequate, but in some respects dangerous as the basis for the impeachment of an American president, Turley wrote. Well, the impeachment process has begun in earnest. We learned uh, yesterday who the the impeachment um, folks would be who would argue on behalf of the and make the the House case. Well, today uh, the president locked down his defense team that will be representing him during his impeachment trial. As House Democrats voted Wednesday to send the articles 
to the Senate. The four-person legal team is made up of several top White House attorneys with an administration official saying that the other uh, lawyers could cycle through or be on the floor in support capacity during the Senate trial. Among them, Pat Cipollone. Cipollone is the White House counsel. He will uh, take the helm in commanding Trump's defense. He was named to the post in October of 2018, but has known the president for years. He represented Trump during his tenure as a partner in the law firm Kirkland & Ellis and helped Trump prepare for the 2016 presidential debates. Despite joining the administration in 2018, Cipollone is uh, no stranger to government work, having worked as the Justice Department under Attorney General William Barr during George Herbert Walker Bush's administration. Cipollone has also played a key role in defending the president during the House's impeachment inquiry that centered on the president's July phone call with Ukrainian leader Zelensky. As White House counsel, Cipollone advised the president to release the memo of the call um, uh, in from the July uh, conversation with Zelensky, and he's also penned an eight-page note to House Democrats asserting that the White House would not cooperate with the congressional impeachment inquiry. His advice to Trump fits the Cipollone beliefs and executive privilege and that the president can shield witnesses and documents from Congress. Also, Jay Sekulow, the second in command of the president's defense. Sekulow has worked as the coordinator of Trump's personal legal team and was heavily involved in his defense during former special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. Sekulow has had a high-profile and colorful career as a litigator, serving as chief counsel of the American Center for Law and Justice and also hosting his own syndicated radio show, which is heard right here on KPDQ. Focusing much of his work on protecting religious and constitutional freedoms, he's argued 12 cases in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Michael Purpura Uh, who will serve as one of the two deputies on the Trump defense team, has worked in the White House counsel's office since January of 2019. A graduate of West Point and Columbia Law School, Papura has a long history of working for Republican presidential administrations. He worked in the White House counsel's office during George W. Bush's presidency, where he was part of the team responding to congressional investigations and was the senior counsel to the deputy attorney general during that administration. Along with his time in the White House, Pipura has also worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office in both the District of Hawaii and Southern District of New York. And finally, Patrick Philbin, rounding off his defense team, the president has appointed Philbin, who has close ties to both Cipollone and George W. Bush administration. The Harvard Law School graduate, who serves as Deputy White House Counsel, was also a partner at Kirkland and Ellis and worked as an Associate Deputy Attorney General during the Bush administration from 2003 to 2005. Philbin handled cases relating to counterterrorism and espionage during the height of the War on Terror. One of his tasks was handling applications for electronic surveillance under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA. He's most widely known for working with then-Deputy Attorney General James Comey and preventing Attorney General John Ashcroft from signing off on a controversial warrantless wiretap program. So now we know who will be defending and making the case for uh, the House Democrats and who will be defending the president in this impeachment process that will begin, has actually officially begun, uh, but we'll have more public uh, hearings on Tuesday, the day after Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, (laughs) Boulevard, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Well, amid a solemn silence, articles of impeachment against the president were read aloud on the Senate floor on Thursday as the bitterly divided chamber began an historic trial of the U.S. president for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. 
Senate Sergeant of Arms Michael Stanger, he opened just the third impeachment trial in the U.S. president in our history with a warning to the 100 senators. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, Stanger said, after the seven members of the House of Representatives who will serve as prosecutors gathered in the well of the Senate chamber. All persons are commanded to keep silent on pain of imprisonment while the House of Representatives is exhibiting to the Senate of the United States Articles of impeachment against Donald Trump, president of the United States, the sergeant of arms said. Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, who will serve as the lead prosecutor for the trial, then read out the two articles of impeachment passed by the House in December. I now I will now read the articles of impeachment, he said, impeaching Donald John Trump, president of the United States, for high crimes and misdemeanors. U.S. Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice John Roberts uh, was sworn in at two o'clock Eastern time to preside over that trial. Roberts, who was appointed to the nation's top court by President George W. Bush, well, then delivered an oath to the 100 senators who swore to administer impartial justice. Uh, The proceedings uh, adjourned and the trial um, got underway in earnest, uh, but will have its first public hearing on Tuesday, according to Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell. Impeachment rules require a two-thirds Senate majority to convict and remove a president, and the Trump acquittal is widely expected in the Republican-dominated Senate. Uh, The Senate's time is now at hand. The president is accused of abuse of power for withholding military aid to Ukraine, and a White House uh, meeting for the country's president in exchange for an investigation into the potential rival of um, uh, Joe Biden and, more importantly, his son. The Government Accountability Office concluded in a report released today that the White House violated federal law by putting a hold on that congressionally approved funds for Ukraine. Faithful execution of the law does not permit the president to substitute his own policy priorities for those that Congress has enacted into law, according to the GAO. We'll talk more specifically about that. It is rather a matter of timing rather than whether or not the funding moved forward. Anyway, the second article of impeachment for obstruction of Congress relates to Trump's refusal to provide witnesses and documents to House impeachment investors in defiance of congressional subpoenas. Now, what the House chose not to do is to refer this to the court and have the court decide uh, their impatience moved forward more quickly and therefore uh, obstruction of um, of Congress is the charge that uh, they have filed. Most say that's the weaker of the two charges. But again, that will be argued out in the Senate. Uh, beginning on Tuesday. Now, coming up, we're going to uh, talk with uh, two authors. They are co-authors. They are also um, are uh, co-leaders of a ministry the two of them founded, Beth and David Borum. When Faith Becomes Sight is the title of their book, Opening Your Eyes to God's Presence All Around You. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Where can I turn to see God? How can I more clearly recognize God's nearness and initiative in my life? Well, these are vital questions if you desire to know and experience the living God. As spiritual directors, my next guests, Beth and David Borum, They have guided many people into deeper awareness of this living, present God at work within their lives. When Faith Becomes Sight, their latest book, it will help you grow in confidence that God is attentive to you and involved in your life as you learn to to recognize God in and around you. Reflect on your experience and respond faithfully to God's presence and action in your life. Along the way, you may venture across new streets and encounter unfamiliar terrain as you notice how God is speaking and what he is doing. Well, in those um, silent, 
shimmering moments, you will um, be invited to greet the one who has been seeking you your entire life, the divine presence who is all around you. My guests are Beth and David Borum. They're co-founders and directors of Fall Creek Abbey, an urban retreat center in Indianapolis. They lead the School of Spiritual Direction there. Beth is the co-author of Awaken Your Senses and the author of several books, including Starting Something New, Picturing the Face of Jesus, and The Wide Open Spaces. She speaks around the country on topics related to spiritual formation and Christian leadership and has been involved for more than 30 years in a variety of ministry roles on college campus. Uh, within and within, I should say, the local church. David is uh, the founder of Direction for Life Work, through which he is a career counselor. As a counselor, he helps his clients gain clarity, confidence, and forward momentum around their vocation and calling. He also served as the pastor of spiritual formation at Grace Community Church for about 10 years. Together, they join us to talk about their latest book, When Faith Becomes Sight, Opening Your Eyes in God's Presence All Around You. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Georgine. It's a privilege to be uh, so many hundreds of miles away from you and yet to share this moment together. We're really glad to be with you. Hi, Georgine. It's Dave. So glad to have you both with with us. It really is kind of amazing when you consider where you're sitting and where I'm sitting, and yet we can have this conversation. Grateful for technology. It Absolutely. is. And the fact that we're perfect strangers and that we get to share this very meaningful time together. Absolutely. Now, recognizing God's presence is a challenge, I think, for many of us. We are uh, familiar with the physical world around us, but we, we know less or little about uh, realities that we cannot necessarily touch or see uh, with our, our physical senses. Talk a little bit about where this notion of um, faith becoming sight um, was birthed in your desire to help people recognize God's presence. We uh, began to notice, Georgine, that a lot of the folks who would come to us for the first time and seek spiritual direction were individuals who felt as though their life with God had kind of dried up. God was not speaking to them through the normal channels, the Bible or prayer or uh, maybe even through sermons and, and friends. And yet, if we would sit with them and ask important questions, and they would begin to share with us more of their inner life and the uh, sensations they were having and desires they were having, we were able to see that God was actually very active in their life, but they simply didn't know how to identify the presence and action of God because God was showing up in ways that were not familiar to them. I know that uh, in the work that you do, you help to guide people to recognize the reality around them. Uh, Talk a little bit about how your work um, has informed your writing and perhaps the other way around. Yes. um, Not everyone has the access to a a spiritual director, and we recognize that, nor is it essential for people recognizing the presence and action of God. And so as we saw the value in in asking maybe different questions and drawing people's attention to notice God's initiation with them, maybe through, as Beth said, different channels, um, we thought, you know, this could be valuable to um, to everyone, have their eyes open a little bit more. I'm, um, I'm old enough, and, and, and I'm assuming you're a young person, but when I grew up, there were only four. There were three channels on our TV, and at times there were four. 
And then we would take our kids eventually to a, a hotel and it would have, oh, 500 channels on cable television. And they just thought they hit the lottery. And I think in many ways, um, that's what we're seeking to do is that God is endlessly creative. He certainly speaks through some of the conventional means through, uh, like Beth said, the Bible and through church and through um, others in our lives. But he is endlessly creative, and we're each a unique individual, and God pursues us in ways that uh, are extremely personal and surprising and creative. Your book is divided into three sections. The first is looking for and recognizing signs of God. The second, looking through, discovering our unconscious and conscious lenses. And the third section is looking within, entering the deep waters of your soul. Let's begin where you begin in the book, looking for and recognizing signs of God. I think the first thing is to recognize that God desires for us to know him, to be known and that we don't just know about him, but to know him. So we can find some consolation, I suppose, in knowing that that's God's heart toward us. But how do we be, begin to look for and recognize signs of God's presence? Yeah, we would say that it's a, a theological assumption we have, that there is something in God's nature that compels God to constantly be revealing God's self to us. It's just a part of who he is. And so as we begin to pay attention to our ordinary lives, we can start to notice ways in which God communicates. So in that particular section or part of our book, we talk about shimmering attractions, and we describe them as these moments when something sort of lifts off the page of life, and we are drawn to it, and yet just as easily we might write it off as nothing. But over time, if we begin to pay attention and say, might God be speaking to me through this shimmering attraction, something that I'm noticing? Um, and I tell the story of one of my directees who woke up, oh, I think it was in the middle of the night, around 3 a.m., and she went to let her dogs out. And she looked up in the sky and saw this little crescent moon, and it was right in her line of sight. And it was as though the moment she looked at it and was captured by it, she sensed a very quiet voice within her say, that's how you see things, and I see the whole. And she immediately recognized that God was speaking through her through the partial representation of the moon, and yet recognizing that she was only seeing in part and God sees uh, the full. You also had, write about um, recurring themes and symbols, things that we may not interpret immediately, but because they are recurring, we may be more apt to then finally recognize this is God revealing himself to me, and I'm learning to recognize the signs. Yeah, I think this is one that really helps us to, to look at the whole arc of our story. Um, God treats our our entire story with such care. Um, one of the stories I tell in there is the directee I made with it. Uh, he, he had noticed that the river was always this recurring symbol. When he would travel, he traveled for his work, and he'd just find himself... I need to find a river to walk on, and it would be a place where he would feel uh, there would be familiarity, he'd feel drawn and at home, that he could pray, that he could be alone with his own thoughts. And so it became this, a river moves, but it was a grounding place for him in his encounter with God. And, uh, and so it's highly personal in particular. Other people will have other themes and symbols. It's almost like a... <clears throat> a memorable song that gets stuck in your head that just kind of comes out of the background and you begin to notice again and again and again. And you have a sense of, I think often of, of returning. It's a, it's a way of, of, 
of God calling us back to return to relationship with him through just in many ways the ordinariness of days or those really hard times. We're talking with Beth and David Borum. They are co-authors of When Faith Becomes Sight, Opening Your Eyes to God's Presence All Around You. And what a marvel it is when we see what is true and present around us. As his word says, he never leaves or forsake us. But we sometimes are challenged to recognize his presence. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Fifty minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Beth and David Borum. Their book is titled When Faith Becomes Sight, Opening Your Eyes to God's Presence All Around You. In the book, readers gain assurance that God is with you and is actively involved in your life and world by growing three capacities. Your capacity to recognize God, to reflect on your experience and respond faithfully to God's presence and involvement in your life. Before the break, we were talking about the way the book is divided into three sections. The first, looking for uh, and recognizing signs of God. The second, looking through, discovering our unconscious and conscious lenses. Tell us about the second part uh, of the book that helps us, uh, again, to recognize God's presence. Yes, we uh, identified the fact that sometimes we have unconscious lenses as as if we're wearing glasses and we don't know it. And we're looking through those lenses, and they are sometimes distorting who we see God to be. And the very first chapter, I think, is one of the really important chapters of our book, and it's about our God image. It's called the face of God. Uh, Another unconscious image would be our expectations and assumptions. Sometimes we have these underlying expectations and assumptions of God that God should act, the God of our understanding should act in a certain way. And then when that doesn't happen, we are so dismayed because God is not behaving the way we think God should. Mm -hmm. And so by recognizing our unconscious lenses, we are able then to see how they are distorting our image of God. And then there are some very conscious ones. They're, They're actually the glasses that we can pick up and we can put them on. They would be things like uh, using our imagination to picture Jesus in the gospel stories or um, picking up the scriptures and reading it in a different way than many of us have been taught through an ancient practice called Lexio Divina. And then our final chapter in that uh, is one of my favorites. It's on God's big book, which is about nature and how God reveals God's self through the natural world. Georgine, um, I'm, I'm struck particularly in the second section and its relationship to people that we visit with for spiritual direction, that many of the people we see, they are very sincere people who are asking questions. Their life experience is causing them to bump up against things that maybe the old answers are not addressing in a way that is um, that is meaningful, that is um, helpful. And unfortunately, sometimes people's faith community can't seem to hold those questions in a helpful way. It might make people anxious, um, or they might have the same questions. And so um, many people don't know where to go, mm-hmm. a safe place to ask those questions, to explore those questions, to cry, to grieve, to come to a new understanding of, uh, of how God is being with them. Is this a kind of a um, a study best done as an individual or in a group setting? What's most effective, uh, as you found, or, or perhaps in a variety of ways? Uh, how would you recommend the book be um, put to best use? I think there's a lot of different ways this book could be very meaningful and helpful to readers. 
I, I certainly, we know a lot of folks and who are reaching out to us because they're reading it and, and it's really helping them to recognize that God has been far more active in their lives than they realize. Mm-hmm. I think one of the ideal ways would be for individuals to read the chapters and then come together and discuss each of them. Uh, the chapters are constructed in such a way that uh, there's always a biblical story, but often told in a more imaginative way. So we will retell the biblical story in some ways to help people to change things up a little bit so that the reader doesn't just gloss over the Bible part because they know the story and they mm-hmm. know how it ends. Instead, they engage with the story. And there is also always a, a session from a spiritual direction session that describes the back and forth between, between one of us and a directee uh, pertaining to this particular topic. And then at the very end, there are some really thoughtful questions. So if readers would really sit down with these questions, work through them, and then find a, a good friend or a small group to process their answers to these questions. I think it would both, um, it would deepen their learning, but it would do an amazing job of helping uh, people get to know one another. We would, we would learn so much that uh, otherwise we would probably never have access to just because of the nature of the topics that we bring up. Yeah, yeah. In the final section of your book, um, Looking Within, and that may be somewhat surprising when we're um, when you're looking to recognize God's presence. But this this third section of the book is absolutely necessary to the other two, entering the deep waters of your soul. Talk a bit about the importance of that aspect of discovering God's presence uh, and looking within. Within is where many of the, the battles and the, um, the what Beth calls the emotional programs for happiness that are in place us up and get in the way of, of knowing God in progressive ways. And so this is, in some ways, it's the deep end of the pool. It's not for the timid. It takes a bit of courage to wade into some of these waters. Uh, we look at some some topics like disorientation. It's an Ignatian mm-hmm. term is orientation toward God, that we're either oriented toward God or oriented away from God. Uh, not in a necessarily sinful way, but sometimes we just drift. And so looking at those drifting patterns, or we look at desire, I think one of the things that uh, is hardest for us to be honest with ourselves or honest with others is what do we really, really, really long for? It's such a human question, and yet it's such a scary question. And so we're inviting people in some ways to befriend their desires, develop a... Um, a um, mm, a more positive relationship with their desires. And so I think we, 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 in some ways, give people permission to consider some things in their interior experience in life that um, they've maybe been discouraged from exploring. Um, and so hopefully we set that up as a way that they're not just encountering themselves, but they're, they're encountering God within their, um, their very being, their heart. The book is titled, When Faith Becomes Sight, Opening Your Eyes to God's Presence All Around You. Let me ask, what difference does it make when we have a healthy recognition of God's presence and his work in our life and on our behalf? What difference might that make in the life of a believer? I think it makes uh, a tremendous difference because life becomes really exciting. When we begin to believe that the God who created the universe is also the God who is present to me, who is communicating with me, who is giving me guidance, who is leading me toward 
the life that he has created me to live, which is a life that uh, he would want to be meaningful and uh, fruitful, boy, that that all of a sudden uh, makes life a pretty exciting opportunity. I agree. And and I would say, I've been aware of this, Georgine, we live in a very secular uh, era today. um, and, And that's not to judge it or anything that we just live in a time where uh, life can, if, if we're not reminded, we can get lost in this pragmatism and sensuality, and that becomes the guiding principles of our life, and that we need ways and means and invitations to, to begin to see the sacred in the world, uh, that the sacred isn't something out there away from the world, but that the sacred, that God is is woven into the fabric of our lives. And that begins to make all the difference in the world as opposed to just pursuing, well, what's, what's the, the, the most um, expedient way to get ahead? Or what's the, the, the next thing that's going to just um, make me feel good for a few minutes or a few hours? Uh, it connects us to the story of God again, not just as out there or in the past, but the story of God right now, right here. That's ongoing. When Faith Becomes Sight, Opening Your Eyes to God's Presence All Around You. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. Beth and David Borum, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Georgine. Have a good night. You too. Really appreciate that. Well, the book is uh, published by InterVarsity Press and is currently available in bookstores. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up next. When we return, we'll continue to take a look at what's going on in the news. And we'll remind you of all the important details for Mission Connection that begins in earnest tomorrow. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, five minutes after five o'clock. James Blinn is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Looking forward to Mission Connection, where we will be broadcasting live tomorrow from 4 to 6. And then looking forward to a great weekend from that point onward. All the uh, throughout the evening on Friday and throughout the day on Saturday. Hope to see you there. If you haven't yet registered, missionconnection.com. It's free of charge, sponsored by area churches, but you need to pre-register. And again, that's Mission Connection with an X dot com at uh, Rolling Hills Community Church in Tualatin this year. Well, the Government Accountability Office has issued a legal opinion today saying the president's administration broke the law by withholding defense aid to Ukraine, the issue at the heart of the president's impeachment trial. Now, it was uh, certainly timed uh, to match the Senate version of the uh, trial. The GAO, by the way, is an independent watchdog agency Uh, That works for Congress. Well, that money, $214 million, which had been allocated by the Department of Defense for security assistance, was appropriated by Congress. And therefore, the administration did not have the right to hold it back just because it disagreed with its allocation. The opinion from the nonpartisan government watchdog said faithful execution of the law does not permit the president to substitute his own policy priorities for those that Congress has enacted into law. Now, this isn't the first time a, a, a member of Congress or a president has withheld funding or postponed funding until certain conditions were met. And the former vice president, who would now um, like to be the next president of the United States, rather brazenly argued in that uh, regard when he was vice president in Ukraine at that time. But OMB made clear Thursday that it disagreed with the GAO report. We disagree with GAO's opinion, OMB spokesperson Rachel Semmel uh, said OMB uses an 
uh, apportionment authority to ensure taxpayer dollars are properly spent consistent with the president's priority and with the law. Further, a senior administration official said that they believe the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, was trying to insert itself into impeachment at a time when media attention on the matter was high. GAO's findings are a pretty clear overreach as to the attempt to insert themselves into the media's controversy of the day. Further, GAO, the Government Accountability Office, has a history of flip-flops reversing 40 years of precedence this year on their pocket rescission decision. Uh, They were also forced to reverse a legally faulty opinion when they opposed the reimbursement of federal employee travel costs. In their rush to insert themselves in the impeachment narrative, maybe they'll have to reverse their opinion again. End quote. Well, the aid was later released to Ukraine after a now famous whistleblower complaint was filed and after the fact that it was being withheld was made public. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer responded to the GAO report Thursday morning with a statement re-upping his demand that the Senate consider additional documents as evidence in the upcoming impeachment trial. Representative uh, Carol Maloney, uh, chairwoman of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, said in a statement that she was concerned that the Trump administration usurped Congress's constitutional authority. Well, the Trump administration, through the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, withheld a total of $400 million of security assistance from Ukraine last Last summer that came after the president asked Ukrainian president to investigate uh, the family of his rival. And while the White House allegedly was withholding an Oval Office visit from Zelensky, which took place as well. Well, these actions are what fueled the impeachment effort against the president, whose trial technically gets underway um, on Tuesday, although it began today. Well, the Constitution grants the president no unilateral authority to withhold funds from obligation, the opinion said. Instead, Congress has vested the president with strictly circumscribed authority to impound or withhold budget authority only in limited circumstances as expressly provided by the ICA. The opinion raised further constitutional concerns about the lack of cooperation from the Trump administration and his executive branch officials with the GAO's investigation. The opinion's conclusion panned a reluctance to provide a fulsome response on part of the OMB and the State Department, which the opinion's author, General Counsel Thomas Armstrong, said interfered with the GAO's oversight role on behalf of Congress. Ukrainian police are now investigating two major cases related to the impeachment trial of President Trump, one around possible illegal surveillance of former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich, and the other around a suspected attack by Russian military hackers targeting a company where the son of former Vice President Joe Biden sat on the board. Now, he has not been on the board for quite some time, but this and this is a recent um, alleged hack. So I'm not sure if there's a connection, but nonetheless, an investigation has been opened on the Ivanovich case. The interior minister said in a statement on Thursday that police had opened a criminal investigation in light of text messages released by Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee this week between two associates of the president's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. On the alleged hacking case, Ukrainian police said Thursday they are now investigating a suspected attack by Russian military hackers that targeted Burisma, the Ukraine-based energy company that employed Hunter Biden, employed past tense. Earlier this week, cybersecurity firm Area One said it had discovered that hackers who appeared to be from Russian military agency, the GRU, had mounted a concerted phishing, that's spelled with a P-H, phishing campaign 
against Burisma employees trying to break into their emails and collect data. The attacks occurred at the height of the impeachment hearings in November, and Area One speculated that the Russian hackers were searching for material that could be damaging to the Bidens or to the Democrats' efforts. Meanwhile, House Speaker Pelosi on Wednesday signed the formal articles of impeachment brought last month against the president and House Democrats carried the articles in a dramatic procession across the U.S. Capitol to the Senate, setting the stage for an historic trial where President Trump will be um, will have his presidency um, scrutinized. Pelosi drew criticism for handing out commemorative pins with her name on them after signing a resolution to transmit the articles of impeachment against the president. She needled the president at the news conference announcing her impeachment manager saying he's been impeached forever. They can never erase that, meaning that it doesn't matter what happens in the Senate. He has officially been impeached by the House. To critics, the tone of the event seemed, well, celebratory. The far cry from December when Pelosi and other Democrats wore black and insisted on the House floor it was a solemn day before the Democrat-controlled body voted to impeach the president. At one point, going so far as to give a stern mother look at some members who erupted into applause uh, when the articles of impeachment were approved to try to squelch any um, image of uh, celebration. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said the Senate will meet with the House managers at noon Thursday, which they did, to officially receive the articles of impeachment. Uh, Wednesday's mostly party line vote to deliver the charges was 228 to 193, reflecting the deeply divided nation at the start of this presidential election year. The Senate will transform itself into the impeachment court today. It uh, did just that. The Constitution calls on Chief Justice John Roberts to preside at the trial, administering the oath to senators who serve as jurors and swear to deliver impartial justice. Opening arguments uh, began or are to begin on Tuesday with After the day of um, Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, the president's team expects acquittals in the Republican-majority Senate. The Senate trial is not expected to last more than two weeks, according to some senior administration officials who were not authorized to speak to the subject. Well, in other news, while media talking heads obsessed over Elizabeth Warren's complaint to Bernie Sanders post-debate that he called me a liar on national TV, the two Democrat senators have a bigger problem, and that is impeachment. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi finally signed those articles of impeachment on Wednesday, sent them to the Senate, a supposedly somber occasion marked by much ridiculous fanfare, including laughing while passing out signing pens. And it was all nearly a full month after the House voted to approve those articles of Pelosi's impeachment delay. Washington Post columnist Henry Olson proposed an interesting theory arguing that the real reason behind it has little to do with pursuing um, Senate Majority Leader McConnell and pressuring him to respond in a particular way and to accepting her witness calling preconditions and everything to do with intra-party tensions. Now, again, this is speculative, but I thought it was rather interesting. Olson argues that delaying sending the impeachment articles until this week ensures that the trial, which starts today with Pelosi's impeachment managers reading charges in the Senate, will then likely drag out into Democrats' Iowa caucuses. This would effectively prevent both Sanders and Warren from spending time campaigning in Iowa as they would be by Senate rule be tied up in the in Washington rather during the impeachment trial. Now, this affects Senator Amy Klobuchar as well. But uh, being realistic, she's not going to win one of the other two just might. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy agreed, saying this harms Senate Senator Sanders, who is in first place and could become their nominee because he will be uh, stuck in the uh, the chair because Nancy Pelosi held the papers. 
It's an intriguing theory that the Democrat establishment, having never fully embraced Sanders, who has not been a Democrat but an independent, uh, nor he them, is underhandedly plotting to diminish his chances of winning Iowa and therefore the nomination in lieu of their favored candidate, Joe Biden. It has the ring of legitimacy after DNC's shenanigans in 2016 worked to prevent Sanders from defeating Hillary Clinton. However, it's ultimately a lame attempt by Olson to get around the fact that Pelosi has royally botched the impeachment gambit. She's not involved in a 4D chess move to ensure that Biden becomes the Democrat nominee. Her aim the entire time has been to damage not just Trump, as demonstrated by her um, speaking on Wednesday that Trump has been impeached forever, but also Senate Republicans up for reelection. Pelosi would welcome a Sanders or Warren presidency just as warmly as she would a Biden one, because Democrats, establishment or not, are united in their desire to see Trump out of office. An interesting speculation on the delay. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Iowa caucuses are never simple. Voters spend hours in high school gymnasiums or public libraries starting their night by declaring support for their preferred presidential candidate. That's followed by a feverish round of lobbying in which supporters are eliminating candidates Uh, are pressed to make a new pick by the evening's end, and it goes on and on and on. Well, this year, the caucuses um, could be even more chaotic. There are new rules that will be implemented on the 3rd of February in that contest that could give presidential candidates an unprecedented opportunity to spin the results. In previous years, the Iowa Democratic Party reported just one number, the number of state delegates won by each candidate. For the first time, the party will this year report two other numbers, who had the most votes at the beginning and at the end of the night. The additional data is a nod to Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and his supporters who argue the previous rules essentially robbed him the victory in his 2016 race against Hillary Clinton. Well, that contest ended in a narrow delegate victory for Clinton in Iowa. Well, party officials in Iowa and at the national level argue the new process will enhance transparency. But as the caucuses approach in less than two weeks, there's a growing sense that the new information will breed confusion by giving multiple candidates the chance to claim victory. Well, the Iowa caucuses are supposed to set the tone for the contests that follow, ultimately helping winnow the field. If multiple candidates can claim success in Iowa, it could prolong the fight for the Democratic nomination. I don't think anybody wants that. Well, adding additional numbers is going to make it more confusing for news organizations and people watching the caucuses. Uh, At least uh, some are suggesting people are going to want to know who won. And I don't know if there's a consensus on one number that people will use to declare, yes, this is the clear winner. Well, what's happening in Iowa will also play out in other states that hold caucuses, uh, including Nevada, February 22nd. Three numbers will be reported. The first round of votes, the final vote total after low polling candidates are eliminated and what are called state delegate equivalents. They represent the number of delegates each candidate will have at the party's state convention in June. That in turn determines how many national convention delegates each candidate receives. Well, the Associated Press says uh, that it's going to base its race call on the winner on state delegate equivalents because delegates are the metric used to decide the eventual winner of the nomination. Iowa and National Democratic Party figures emphasize this is the number to watch. 
This is a contest of delegates, the Iowa Democratic Party chairman says. Campaigns will highlight whatever number is the most advantageous for them. But in the end, what matters is the delegates that come out of the Iowa to the national convention and state delegates will remain the best indicator of that. Um, The only way to become the Democrat Party's uh, presidential nominee is by winning a majority of national convention delegates. He went on to say, we strongly encourage anyone who wants to understand who is winning the race for the nomination to pay attention to those results. The question is whether candidates will follow their lead. Sanders' chief advisor said that uh, his team is trying to win all three categories of results. But he's also suggesting the campaign will emphasize the raw totals from the first round of votes, no matter what the eventual outcome will be. At At the end of the day, the first impression is probably the most accurate portrayal of who won the night. Well, there's a chance that a candidate might win the most support during the first vote, but lose out on the final alignment and ultimately the delegate count after supporters for candidates who are not viable realign with the first round of counting. Well, this is a scenario that could play out for a candidate like Sanders or former Vice President Joe Biden, both of whom are expected to be viable in the largest number of precincts statewide. So it's going to be interesting to see if they have interjected confusion by providing this information or if it just gives another something to think about as the process plays itself out. Well, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is proposing a rule that implements President Trump's executive order that removes current regulatory burdens on religious organizations and ensures that religious and non-religious organizations are treated equally in um, HHS, Health and Human Services Supported Programs. The rule protects Health and Human Service supported religious social service providers from discrimination in federal regulation, and it guides all federal administrative agencies and executive departments in compliance with federal law. Well, HHS's proposed rule would eliminate current discriminatory regulations enacted by former President Obama that require only religious providers of social services to make referrals under certain circumstances to alternative service providers and post notices regarding this referral procedure. As HHS proposed rule observes, however, these burdens were not required by any applicable law. And because they were imposed only on religious social service providers, they are in opposition with recent Supreme Court precedent regarding non-discrimination against religious organizations. The recent Supreme Court precedent regarding non-discrimination against religious organizations uh, has informed this new interpretation. The proposed rule also would foreclose um, other unequal treatment on religious organizations by ensuring that they are not required to provide assurance or notices that are not required of secular organizations. In addition, the proposed rule will clarify that religious organizations may apply for awards on the same basis as any other organization, and that when HHS selects award recipients, they will not discriminate based on an organization's religious character. The proposed rule also clarifies that religious organizations participating in HHS-supported programs retain their independence from the government and may continue to carry out their mission consistent with religious freedom protections in federal law, including the free speech and free exercise clause of the First Amendment. Well, the Family Research Council is applauding the president's announcement today that his administration will protect religious organizations and reinforce freedom of public school students across the country to pray and express their religious beliefs. 
The local education agencies receiving federal education funding under the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965 must certify in writing to its state educational agency that it has no policy that prevents or otherwise denies participation in constitutionally protected prayer in public schools as detailed in this updated guidance. The administration also issued nine proposed rules that protect religious organizations from being discriminated against by the federal government. Tony Perkins from the Family Research Council released a statement that said the following. President Trump and his administration are taking on the bullies that have been intimidating school officials and bullying students with their own baseless lawsuits. No longer will students have to stand alone in their defense of their religious freedom as these anti-faith organizations seek to rob students in public schools of any form of religious expression. He's also stepping up to protect religious organizations from government discrimination. This is a president who is putting freedom back in Religious Freedom Day. So that uh, took place today as well. Well, states can continue to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment that Congress proposed in 1972 only if it is still pending before the states. If not, uh, however, the 1972 ERA cannot be ratified because it no longer exists. Advocates claiming that the 1972 ERA can still be ratified today make several errors, such as failing to distinguish between types of constitutional amendments and misunderstanding congressional authority over the constitutional amendment process. Nevertheless, none of the 1972 ERA's deadlines passed without ratification by three-fourths of the states. The proposed amendment expired and is no longer pending. That was 1972, therefore uh, can no longer be ratified because it no longer exists. Well, Virginia disagrees. Virginia ratified the Equal Rights Amendment decades after that uh, deadline. Well, both houses of Virginia's legislature voted to ratify the ERA, but the ERA's future is uncertain. Its original deadline elapsed uh, decades ago. Um, An ERA supporter um, suggested that may not be the case, as did others in the legislature. Virginia became the pivotal 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment after its Senate and House of Delegates voted Wednesday to approve the change to the U.S. Constitution. The provision include a guarantee that equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any other state on account of sex. The Virginia Senate voted 28 to 12 and the House of Delegates 59 to 41 to approve the ERA, according to Um, uh, delegates present. Well, under the U.S. Constitution, amendments become law when they're ratified by at least three-fourths of U.S. state legislatures, or 38 out of 50. However, the ERA's original deadline for ratification expired in the 1980s, putting its future on uncertain legal ground. Well, that didn't stop the backers in Virginia from welcoming a long-awaited day. Supporters poured out of the House galley to celebrate with delegates What may or may not make a difference? Well, the ratification vote came early in Virginia's legislative session after voters put a record number of women in office in November. The state house now has the first female speaker in its history. Women also serve as president pro tempore and of the Senate and in the other high profile posts. Well, the people of Virginia spoke last November, voting a record number of women into the House of Delegates and asking us to ratify the ERA, said the House Majority Leader. It is inspiring to see the amendment fully considered, voted on, and passed long-awaited recognition that women deserve. Again, it expired in the 1980s. What happens next is not clear, but in Virginia, they've now passed the ERA. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back 37 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In the broad general category of stuff that's going on, I read an interesting uh, report about a 45-year-old man who was convicted as a sex offender, but he offered something of a, a bizarre defense um, because these days one can offer a bizarre defense and it's actually defensible. Well, this was a Michigan man who defended himself over a stash of child pornography found on his computer, and he claimed innocence because he self-identified as an eight-year-old girl. Now, thankfully, the defense did not work for him, but this 45-year-old put up this defense in court before he was sentenced last week to up to 20 years in prison. I've always been an eight-year-old girl, he said, and even my drawings and fantasies, I've always been an eight-year-old girl, and somehow... Uh, That was to exonerate him. Now, again, gladly, it did not hold up in court. But if we follow the course that the culture is taking, one wonders how long it will be before it might. Well, prosecutors alleged at least eight minors were identified in graphic images on his computer. Children as young as infants were uh, in that um, that cache. He was found guilty of three counts of um, abusive use of uh, the material representing himself in court. Hmm. Uh, he claimed the images were computer animated and protected under the First Amendment because he had a fool for a client, as they say. He told the judge um, uh, that he um, would only um, reserve his interest in uh, images and not go beyond that. But the Kent County assistant prosecutor argued that he was a danger to the public, claiming that he talked about and drew images uh, that were far beyond just images. Well, the circuit court uh, judge sentenced him to between 10 to 20 years behind bars, saying he showed zero remorse, of course, believing himself to be beyond reproach because he is himself an eight-year-old girl, self-identified. Based on everything he's said and done, including bragging about uh, uh, what he was drawing in his cell, he obviously doesn't think uh, abusive material is wrong. This isn't just virtual stuff. This is also real people being harmed. Um, The sex offender with a prior conviction from a 2001 case for uh, abuse, and this is not just images, will spend 10 to 20 years behind bars. But again, offer the defense uh, self-identifying as an eight-year-old girl. Well, the signs at Glacier National Park warning that its signature glaciers would be gone by 2020 are being quietly changed. The signs in the Montana park were added more than a decade ago to reflect climate change forecasts at that time by the U.S. Geological Survey. In 2017, the park was told by the agency that the complete melting off of the glaciers was no longer expected to take place so quickly due to changes in the forecast model. But tight maintenance budgets made it impossible for the park to immediately change the signs. The most prominent placards at St. Mary Visitor Center were changed last year. But they say that the park is still waiting for budget authorization to update signs at two other locations. The glacier warning isn't being removed entirely. Instead, the new signs will say when they will completely disappear depends on how and when we act. One thing is consistent. The glaciers in the park are shrinking. Humans are responsible. Well, the 27, uh, in 2017, the study released by the USGS and Portland State University said that in the past half century, some of the ice formations in Montana had lost 85 percent of their size and the average shrinkage was 39 percent. You do the math and it uh, equaled 2020, no more glaciers. In several decades, they will be mostly gone. They will grow so small that they will disappear. They will certainly be gone before the end of the century. Well, the end of the century has now come and gone. There are variations in the climate, but it is humans 
who have made these variations warmer. Well, in Switzerland, glaciers have shrunk 10 percent in the past five years, an unprecedented rate in more than a century by of observation. Research published last year shows in Iceland, researchers bid farewell to the first glaciers of the, the country lost to climate change. They say in a funeral like gathering, scientists memorialized the glacier known as OK, with a plaque that read OK is the first Iceland glacier to lose its status as a glacier in the next 200 years. All our glaciers are expected to follow the same path. Well, sadly, we don't know the timing of these events. And at least in Glacier Park, Glacier National Park, they have to replace signs that predicted overly aggressively what was going to happen. And then at least two Iranian journalists at a state-owned media outlet reportedly resigned from their jobs, with one of them apologizing to viewers for the 13 years I told you lies. As Tehran continues to grapple with the fallout from protests stemming from a cover-up of its accidental drowning of a, a downing rather of a Ukrainian airliner, a TV anchor addressing his viewers, or rather her viewers, on an Instagram post that appears to have been deleted. It was very hard for me to believe that our people have been killed, the post read, according to The Guardian. Forgive me that I've got to know uh, this late, and forgive me for the 13 years I told you lies. Two other news anchors at the Islamic Republic of Iran Broadcasting thanked their supporters in separate statements. Thank you for accepting me as anchor until today. I will never get back to TV. Forgive me. A fellow anchor said she was leaving journalism after 21 years. Thank you for your support in all years of my career, she said. I announced that after 21 years working in radio and TV, I cannot continue my work in the media. I cannot. Well, the resignations come as Iranians uh, again took to the streets in anti-government protests. Many are calling for the ouster of government leaders after the shooting down of the Ukrainian passenger plane that Iran initially denied responsibility for. Tehran later walked back its denial and admitted it downed the plane in a misfire during attacks on bases in Iraq where American troops were housed. The attack followed the killing of Iranian Quds General Qasem Soleimani in a U.S. airstrike. And a glance to the left, a flick to the right as your eyes flit around the room, move through a virtual interface only visible to the wearer, scrolling through a calendar, commute time, home, even controlling music playback. It's all uh, you need theoretically to do what the Mojo lens is designed to do in the future, a smart contact lens coming from a company called Mojo Vision. The display of the future might be in your contact lens. The prototype can enhance your vision or show you your schedule right from the surface of your eyes. Well, the California-based company, which has been uh, uh, quiet about what it's been working on for five years, has finally shared its plan for the world. First true smart contact lens. But let's be clear, this is not a product you'll see in the store shelves next autumn. It's in the research and development phase, a few years away from becoming a real product. In fact, uh, the demonstrations uh, didn't even involve uh, plopping a contact lens in the eye. They used virtual reality headsets and held up bulky prototypes uh, in order to see what these will ultimately do. The future of, length, of less screens. Well, Mojo Vision is all about invisible computing. The company whose founders include industry veterans from the likes of Apple, Google, Amazon, and Microsoft want to reduce our reliance on screens. Instead of pulling out your phone to check why a it buzzed in the middle of your conversation. Look at the corner of your eye to activate an interface that will tell you in a split second. We want to create a technology that lets you be you, it says, lets you look like you, doesn't change your appearance. It doesn't make you act weird walking down the street. 
uh, says the co-founder. It's very discreet and, frankly, substantially most of the time, it doesn't show you anything. Well, that's interesting to consider. We have a hard time communicating with one another now. If these contact lens actually become very popular when you're engaged in conversation with someone and you're expecting to have eye contact, what would likely happen is suddenly they would look to the left because they're checking on their phone or look down to the right-hand corner because they're finding out whether or not the course they're taking is the correct one. It seems to me while you look like you and you'll be you, you'll be just as distracted as you might otherwise be looking at a screen. Making smart contact lenses is no simple task, though, even uh, the subsidiary of the uh, company had to refocus its smart lens program after hitting a few snags. You need to have the right uh, sensors at the right sizes, the power to make it all work, and a display and image sensor, too. These sensors range from custom wireless radios to motion sensors for eye tracking and image stabilization. But this may be the look of the future. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll wrap things up when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, we're getting excited here because we're preparing to broadcast live tomorrow from Mission Connection Northwest. One body, one voice, one mission. Uh, Friday night, Saturday, all day at Rolling Hills Community Church, 100-plus workshops, uh, more than 100 exhibits, resources. Now, registration, as you've heard me say, is uh, online. It is required, although admission is free. MissionConnection.com, and connection is spelled with an X rather than a T. MissionConnection.com. It's a great way to get all the details, the schedule, the um, uh, background of each of the speakers, not just the keynote, but all of the workshops, uh, presenters, and so on, some of the special guests. So that's all starting tomorrow night. We'll be broadcasting from 4 to 6, but Mission Connection begins in earnest on uh, Friday evening. Uh, let's see, the first event, um, doors open at 4.30, so that gives you some indication. If you're coming and you see us there broadcasting live, please Feel free to stop by and say hello. Now, if I'm speaking into the mic, you know that we're on the air. But during the breaks, I'd love to stop and say hello. So things begin tomorrow at 4.30. Doors open. Dinner is served from 5 to 7. There are workshops uh, at 5.30 to 6.30. And then our first keynote speaker is Dr. Stephen Yoon. I had an opportunity to hear him speak when he was in the Portland area a couple of months ago. And you don't want to miss Uh, what he has to share. He grew up in South Korea, and Dr. Yoon and his wife, Joy, they've been residents and Christian cross-cultural workers in North Korea for more than 10 years. Dr. Stephen leads a team of local physicians. He treats pediatric patients with developmental disabilities at the Pyongyang Medical School Hospital. Uh, He and his uh, wife and family live in North Korea. It's a fascinating Uh, ministry that they are engaged in. Then on Saturday, doors open again at 8 o'clock in the morning, and the first speaker for the day will be uh, Dr. Michael Badriaki. He's the keynote uh, for that first session. He is from Uganda. He was born in Kenya, but grew up in Uganda. He has experience serving globally in evangelism, in education, holistic missions, global health, leadership development. He's the author of When Helping Works, Alleviating Fear and Pain in Global Missions. He serves as the president of Global Leadership Community. He's a professor at Lancaster Bible College in Pennsylvania, where he lives with his uh, wife and daughter. And they, of course, are recent transplants, having been in Oregon for a number of years. He's a graduate of Multnomah and George Fox. In fact, he earned his Ph.D. at, at Fox. 
Uh, there are opportunities for, uh, I should say several opportunities for, to be exact, to attend workshops. And there's quite an impressive list. When you go to missionconnection.com, you can get all the details uh, as you're registering. But later in the day, you'll have the opportunity uh, to watch the movie Tortured for Christ. Uh, that'll be right around noon. And uh, you'll also have an opportunity to hear from one of the largest mission organizations in the U.K. They'll be making presentation. Uh, Becky Pippert will be um, uh, speaking uh, in the afternoon at Mission Connection about uh, 3 o'clock. She will be the keynote. She, of course, is the author of 11 books. She's the founder of Becky Pippert Ministries, a global evangelism ministry. She and her husband have ministered extensively on all six continents, most recently living in the U.K. and Europe. She is the author of the best-selling book, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. It remains a definitive guide to personal evangelism. She began her ministry right here in Portland on staff with InterVarsity at Reed College. So we're delighted to have her back, and she'll be speaking in the afternoon on Saturday. And then on uh, Saturday evening, uh, Dick Brogdon will be the uh, keynote speaker. He and his wife have served among Muslims for the last two and a half decades. They helped found Live Dead. Uh, It's a movement. He's the author of Loving Muslims, The Live Dead Joy, This Gospel Abiding in Jesus, Abiding Mission, and the editor of several other books. All these will be available, by the way, and you can find them on Amazon. Uh, uh, Dick has his Ph.D. in Intercultural Studies. He and his wife have two sons. He'll be presenting as the final plenary speaker uh, on Saturday night. Now, I should mention that each of these um, platform speakers will also have the opportunity to make presentation in the workshop tracks. You can find out more about that uh, when you go to missionconnection.com. I should mention that Rolling Hills Community Church worship team, Aaron Dore and Joy Haley, will be leading worship for us throughout the weekend. We'll have the opportunity to hear from Mike, uh, rather Mark Miles and Boss Turf Ministries. Um, Boss is Busy Out Saving Souls Turf Ministries. Uh, it consists of highly devoted men and women who are after God's own heart. They're going to share, um, uh, we have been broken, fell victim to the evil of this world, but with the grace, mercy, and love of Christ, we've overcome the darkness and been brought into the light. This is the gift that we want to share with others in the same trap God has delivered us from. Remarkable backstory, and I hope you'll have the opportunity to learn a little bit more about them. There'll be special guests performing a few times throughout the weekend. Also, uh, we'll have the opportunity to hear from Michael Ramsden. He is the president of Ravi Zacharias Ministries International, one of the founders of the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. He's pursued his passion to engage people of uh, of all backgrounds and cultures about questions of faith. He speaks across the globe, helps oversee the international teams of Ravi Zacharias ministry speakers based on 16 offices worldwide and uh, lives in Oxford with his wife and their three children. He will be there and have an opportunity to hear from uh, him. And we have a couple of special guests who are uh, going to be visiting us from Myanmar, formerly known as uh, Burma. Reverend uh, Ong Nan Kangda is the Director of Leadership Development at the Department of um, uh, Kachin Bible Convention. Uh, and also Ting Ying Saolang, uh, he's the program director uh, in the same program. Uh, both of them will give a brief testimony during the, the program. So I'm looking forward to giving you the opportunity 
uh, to hear from them. Now, Mission Connection, of course, is the premier event in the Connection series of events that take place throughout the year. This weekend, it was kicked off uh, on Friday with Leadership Connection, also at Rolling Hills. Then, of course, Mission Connection Northwest, Friday night and Saturday. But you should be aware that in February, there's short-term connection. Uh, In March, Crescent Connection, formerly known as Muslim Connection, that's going to be at Crossroads Community Church in Vancouver. The Journey Deepens Connection in Beaverton uh, Christian Church in April. In May, Prayer Connection at Southwest Hills Baptist Church and Student Connection in November. So this is one of a series of events uh, that addresses the, the needs and equips the saints to do the work of the ministry in a variety of areas. So you can make note of that. When you arrive at Mission Connection, there are resources there that provide all of this information so that you can take it home with you and add it to your calendar. You also have the opportunity to not only see what workshops are available, but who the presenters are, uh, what their backgrounds are, what ministries they're connected with. And this uh, is a, a just a treasure trove of information about ministries here locally and all around around the world. If you are uh, looking for uh, ministry, if you're praying about what direction you might go, you not only have an opportunity to attend workshops, but as I've mentioned, there are um, over 100 workshops, 100 exhibits and resources, and all of those, or at least the vast majority, are manned by individuals who are in the ministry. So you have the opportunity to have Um, to engage them and have great conversation. So all of that's coming up starting tomorrow evening with Mission Connection Northwest at Rolling Hills Community Church. If you haven't yet registered, you can go to missionconnection.com, connection spelled with an X, and register. Free of charge, but you need to register. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.